From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 200, which is crazy. I can't believe I have made 200 episodes of this podcast. So thanks for listening. And I'm excited to do a lot more. That said, there will be a bit of a hiatus for the next couple weeks because I am off shooting a movie. But when I come back, I'm going to have a really awesome guest to kick us off into the next 200 and more episodes. So please do come back for that. That said, for this episode, I am joined by some of my all-time favorite guests that I brought back for this very special 200th episode. We have Norm Wilner from Now Magazine. He is also a podcaster in his own right for someone else's movie. We also have Ken Cooperis, the showrunner of Hudson and Rex. Daniel Grant, who is also of ThatShelf.com podcast family with Spoiled Rotten and Movies versus Matrimony. And last but not least, short filmmaker Noah Taylor. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. So we are sitting down vicariously on Zoom to watch High Noon. I'm Jeremy, and I have seen this film. And with me tonight is a, a who's who's of this uh, of the Black Hole Films podcast uh, for our 200th episode. So we have got um, someone who might be the guest who's been on the most. I'm not sure. Uh, he's up there. Is Norm Wilner? Oh, you're, you're high in the count. I've done 12 or 13, right? I, there oh, yeah. was that Soderbergh double bill that counts as two. So I think I cheated a little, but yes, uh, I'm delighted to be here for this one. And uh, I had seen High Noon, in fact, just most recently last night. Oh, there you go. And, and uh, Ken, who has also been on the podcast many times. Yes, uh, I think eight or nine. Yeah. Um, first, congratulations. Amazing achievement. 200 episodes. Um, and I have not seen this movie, actually. This is a true black hole for me. Nice. We also have Noah Taylor. Uh, yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. I have not seen this movie. It's been high on my list for a long time, so I think I'm the one who suggested it. And, and last but not least, another member of the That Shell podcast empire, we have Daniel Grant. Hello. Uh, yeah, have not seen it. Congratulations on 200, and thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah, so I only saw this, uh, and I'm, I'm going to be watching it on a much better screen tonight because I think last time I saw it, it was on my iPad at my mm-hmm. wife's aunt's house on the Criterion Channel app. Um, so this will be a, a better view. But Norm, you were saying that the, the DVD you have is like a sepia tone to it? Yeah, there have been a bunch of different transfers. This is one of the titles from the Republic Pictures Library that got bounced around a lot in the 80s. Um, and there were 
Paramount had it for a while, and their transfer, which is the one that is on the Republic Lionsgate DVD that I have, is like almost brown in some scenes. It's it's I mean it's a black and white film, and they've tried to do something with it, but I think it was an attempt at making it look sepia toned. But that's not really how it comes out. Like if everybody can think of the beginning of the Wizard of Oz, which was actually sepia, um, that's not this. So I was really surprised the first time I saw High Noon, it was in black. Like it was in, I think it was in film school. I think I saw it in like either 16 or 35 and it was proper black and white. And the transfer that's been going around in the Republic version is like a yellowy brown, like a, like an unripe, like a ripe, an overripe banana. I feel I, I can't remember exactly, but I feel like the one that I saw on the Criterion channel or Canopy was probably a similar one. I remember it not being quite black and white, but, black and white-ish. Um, so I'll, I'll let you know after I watch the Apple TV version tonight. So we picked this for number 200 because we wanted to pick like a big iconic film. I know this is on like a lot of lists, um, especially in terms of Westerns, but also I'm sure it falls some on one or at least one or two of the AFI's lists. So for those who haven't seen it, what made this like a film that it's like, I got to see this one? Oh, me? Uh, uh, <laughs> the people that haven't seen it. Oh, okay. I think it's what you said that it's on so many lists. I like it's not something that I'd heard of just through osmosis. It was kind of just like anytime I read a list of best movies, High Noon is on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. I'm also just like a, a huge Western fan. I think I've I've actually like when I worked at uh, I worked at a couple of video stores. I probably took it home once or twice, but was just never really in the mood. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, for me, I uh, it's a um, it's an Oscar winner uh, for best actor that I just haven't uh, had a chance to um, see that performance yet. So it's always been one that's kind of lingered. Um, I do love Westerns, but um, I don't know. I just have never made the time for it. So I'm excited to uh, finally do that tonight. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm excited to revisit it because I've been watching like the Eastern version of Westerns, which there's a lot of samurai films. Uh, and they really do have like the same beats in terms of and, and character tropes and types. It's really fascinating. I mean, and they, they literally, I mean, Yojimbo is, you know, fistful of dollars. Like they, they, yeah. that's kind of what they've, they've parroted there. And, uh, and Kurosawa was definitely like aping John Ford and all of those movies. So it's, it's exciting watching like the parallels back and forth. Um, especially I'm, we're, now I'm watching that. Norm, have you ever checked out the uh, Zatoichi films? Seen a couple, but not the whole. I mean, what is it? Thirty-one of them. I think the there's twenty-five. Whole, 25. I'm, I'm I'm halfway through. I'm halfway uh, through them. They're they're so good. I came to them. I think I came to them in reverse. I saw um, is it Takeshi Kitano's film from like two thousand and six? Maybe he did one, and that's how I found out about the others. Oh. So they were they were in a blind spot for me. I, I guess I've seen the first three. Maybe first, the first three are a solid trilogy. They're pretty good. They they and they don't let up. Like I'm halfway through, and they keep on finding new ways to play with that character. Uh, anyway, I'm gonna do. I'm doing a whole episode on the 25 films wow. uh, coming up. Um, so listeners who uh, want a real nerd fest of me babbling <laughs> on about samurai films, stay tuned for that. Have you seen uh, uh, Blind Fury? No, no, it's oh. on my list, but it's on the Criterion Channel, so I'm gonna check that one out too. This is the this is the Ritker Hauer American remake of. Oh Zatoichi. no, then I yeah. haven't just resurfaced on blu-ray nobody knows it exists it was directed by philip noyce who made dead calm and clear and present danger is like the a late 80s thing it's great it is that was my first exposure to it and then 
maybe 15 years later, it's like, oh, there's a whole thing behind this. I didn't realize it had been a remake in the first place. Oh, amazing. That, that was a pay TV staple for me um, <laughs> growing up. So I saw that one probably 20 times in my late teens. Solid, isn't it? It's really yeah, good. It's fantastic. Nice. So for those who haven't seen, what do you know about High Noon? I know Gary Cooper's in it, and that's about it. I just found out Gary Cooper's in it. I know <laughs> oh, no! nothing about this movie. Like Of all the times I've been on, I feel like I've had an idea. This one, I'm just like, I... I don't know anything other than Gary Cooper's in it. <laughs> oh, and I know the score is supposed to be really good as well. Apparently it's got a great score. So I thought I kind of knew what this movie was, but um, I re I watched the trailer just uh, because I was getting excited about it. And I realized that I had it completely confused with gunfight at the okay corral. So I actually have no idea what this is about other than it seems to be some sort of confrontational Western. <laughs> as opposed to those westerns that are just about like two people sitting around chewing the fat well the trailer is very vague it's like it seems to like be driving towards some sort of confrontation and uh and and uh which is the pretty much the same as gunfight the okay corral but so i guess it's there's a reason why i got those two movies confused now was the trailer like a modern trailer that they cut for like a release of it or was it like the original trailer they would have released in the whenever it came out i wouldn't say it's a modern trailer but i also pro doubt it was the original trailer it was probably like a dvd um trailer from uh it's you know early release in the, right. in the 90s whenever it came out because some of those old was like well hey look there's gary cooper <laughs> you know him from these films it wasn't it wasn't like that it was <laughs> like um it was it was almost like they were aping the um the uh leone films kind of okay. like that yeah i also know it's it's about 85 minutes so that's a big plus as well yeah less than we, we were originally going to do uh gone with the wind for this 200th episode and then i realized i don't have four hours to spend plus the podcast length so yeah. we're gonna we're gonna save that for a future uh, big episode uh, so stay tuned for that in a year or maybe two or <laughs> however some i promise you i'm threatening one time we will do gone with the wind uh and uh and and shit will get real <laughs> <laughs> all right well since you guys know nothing and some of you know even less than you thought you knew going into today uh i think that's a great place to stop and we will we will reconvene for uh for part two of this Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. And we just finished. Um, amazing. We all kind of came on around the same time, which was baffling to me. This is, like I said, uh, I think after I stopped recording, this is the most people I've had on uh, on the podcast since we started doing Zoom recordings, thanks to, uh, thanks to the pandemic. So uh, it, it's working far too well for my own luck. Mm -hmm. uh, so for those who have not seen this movie, we'll let you jump in first. Uh, who's, who's the most excited to jump in? Let's go with uh, Eeny, Meeny, Miny. None of you are. Oh, I, th I thought you were going to pick. I thought you were going to pick. No, I, I, I don't know. Just someone jump in. I don't know. I, uh, I, I, I really liked it. I, there's one thing. I thought there was going to be more, but there was one thing I was just like, oh, I don't know if that worked for me. But other than that, I thought it was a well-done film. Uh, and I actually ended up really caring for Will Kane. I mean, they really beg you to, but like, I like there's that one scene where I'm like, all right, uh, I'm on his side. Like that sucks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ken. 
Uh, I thought it was actually terrific. Like uh, I thought it was breezy and quick and fun and simple and effective. I'm not, I, you know, I'm a little torn because it, it feels like the easiest uh, best actor win ever because like <laughs> he really didn't have to, like his emotions were big emotions, you know, like it was like, it was just, just, you know, um, north of being a melodrama in the way he kind of presented, you know, you knew exactly what his mood was with every look. And I, and like, I don't know if that was like, um, the mark of great acting or the mark of like just, um, an easy emotional ride. So, um, it's tough because sure it's, that. it's 52. Really it. Yeah. It's 52. So we haven't entered into like the James Dean new era of acting yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so it's a it's a fine line there. And Noah, what were your initial uh, thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I liked it. Obviously, it's uh, it was great. I mean, I don't know if to be honest, I thought I might have liked it more than I did. Uh, there was a few things that a few little nitpicky things that I don't really hold against it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was good. <laughs> um, Nitpick, dude, uh, do it. Yeah. Talk shit. I want to hear it. All right. All right. Well, who who gets married at 10 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> when it's a noon train, Noah. I know, but the uh the, it starts with the wedding, right? Uh yeah, but so they're like, going, they're leaving. They gotta make the train. Yeah, yeah, I guess. And and the the I mean, I guess there's a lot. I, I liked the um the real-time element of it, but I felt mm-hmm. like they had to bend a lot of things to make that work to have this all happen in one morning. I love um, yeah. yeah, I love that it's it, it takes place in real time slower than the movie is. Like, the movie is longer. Like, the real time takes is two hours. The movie is 82 minutes, 84 yeah. minutes. Yeah. yeah. Like, the time itself literally doesn't make any sense. Like, the whole logic and time of how long things take make yeah. no sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you have to get past that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I found myself trying to look at because there's a lot of clocks in a lot of scenes. So I was always trying to look at the clock to see like okay, how accurate yeah. they were being. Yeah, yeah. So that was cool. And then the fact that the uh, the pub was full. The, the you know at like eleven o'clock on a Sunday morning they got the the full pub and everything. But uh, yeah, I mean no, it was it, it most of it worked for me. Um, yeah, uh, and it's, it's always hard to tell too when you watch these movies. It's like oh, did this start the trope or is this um, you know just playing into existing way. existing tropes? You know. Which tropes in yeah. particular? But uh, yeah, which, which I, I, also felt- I have to say, like I, I thought that um, just having there be only four guys that were um, were the bad guys that uh, the three plus the guy that came in on the train, it just seemed it just made the the town seem even more incredibly cowardly um, than if like there was a gang of ten people, in which case you can like kind of forgive them. Because, you know, the weird thing is that they were still there. Like, there was that great shot of, you know, um, the completely blank, empty town. And then the second he took down the last guy, the entire town just comes pouring out of all the doors and all the... And there's, like, and like a horse-drawn cart comes roaring in. It was like they knew there was there was only a couple of guys there and nobody came and helped. It was, it was just incredible. The only person that helped is, is uh, Grace Kelly. His new wife, Fred. Yeah, that town is full of assholes. He, yeah. you know, <laughs> if it wasn't for the fact that he had a personal connection to the guy and the reason why he wanted to come back, and he felt probably responsible for the fact that this guy was coming in, yeah, like fuck those guys. But even the one guy says when he goes into the church, he's like, "Look, it's like just leave." It's like he's not going to kill any of us. He doesn't want us. He wants you. 
Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. But there's something about the the whole uh, the 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 proud you know the proud Western figure who has to can't back down from a, a challenge or a a threat. Was anyone else getting the Clash song stuck in their head a lot? The should I stay or should I go? That was like a theme song in this movie. Yeah. Well, I, speaking of theme songs, like, you know, that opening one really gives away a whole shitload of the plot. You know? Oh, man. Yep. I still have, oh, yeah. do not forsake me, oh, my darling. Like, I'll have that. Till I shoot Frank back. Miller dead. Was that, yeah. that diegetic music? Or? There is a I moment where Lee Van Cleef like is playing it on the harmonica, right? Which means yeah, okay. he knows that he's in a movie about this song. <laughs> yeah. But and that's Lee Van Cleef, like baby yeah, face Lee Van Cleef, which is yeah, so great. That, that was the first thing I noticed. Obviously, it was young Lee Van Cleef who I like couldn't take. I couldn't tell you what the other two guys looked like because every time he was on screen, you're looking at Lee Van Cleef, like yeah, that's such an amazing face. And Lloyd Bridges too. Wow, like that was it was so interesting seeing him so young. Yeah, he was Gary Cooper's choice because he replaced somebody who got fired because they looked like too much of a villain because they Lee had like, Van a Cleef. Hook. yeah. Lee Van Cleef was supposed to be in Lloyd Bridges' role. Yeah, yeah, and he had oh, too much really? of a hooked nose, and they thought that he looked like a villain, yeah. so they uh, they put him in the other part. Yeah, wow. the the range of performers in this thing. I mean, like Lon Chaney is in it, and yeah, um, you're covering like a hundred years of cinema through everybody who's there. And this was considered like a comeback picture for Gary Cooper because he was kind of on the on the twilight of his career, and and he even thought he was too old for the role. I mean, he's thirty years older than Grace Kelly. Yeah, yeah. She, she was 21 when they made the movie. And it was like and they, they barely had an affair on set too. Yeah, they did, which is even more inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> he but, was more than double her age. Yeah, but I mean, here's the thing: for the period they're playing, that was not an uncommon thing for someone that old to have such a wife. Mm-hmm. In the 50s, it's a different. Anyway, there yeah. it's you know we can't apologize for no. uh, <laughs> uh, you know decades of shitty, not shitty casting, but just like casting where. People gave zero fucks how old the guy was and how young the girl was, you know. Yeah. There's not much to be done about that. But this must have been one of Grace's first roles, if not her first one, because I think they discovered off of Broadway, um, the the casting director for this movie did anyway. So I don't know. Do you know Norm offhand? I think it was her her first lead, but she'd been in a couple of movies. Was she in Mogambo already by that point? I don't know. I'm looking it up because I can do that while you guys talk. To the internet. I'm already there. Um, oh, maybe I am wrong. Yeah. Um, Henry Hathaway had offered her a small role in something beforehand. Um, but was this it? 14 this, hours. This is, this is her first movie? Uh, this was her first leading role. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. Like, even like I had to remind myself that it was Grace Kelly because I, I, I got a crush on Grace Kelly, guys. I'm not going to oh, lie. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. Uh, I, I, yeah. But especially like Rear Window Grace Kelly. Like, like that's my Grace Kelly. And it took me a second going, because there is a difference between that Grace Kelly and this one, right? Like there, there's a distinct, like, like not only it's probably 10 years or more. I don't know what year Rear Window is. I think it's like 63 or 64. Um but uh it's no rear window was 1953 it's right around the oh, corner god it and feel- dial in for murder too like they're right around the corner for her but she does she looks like a child in this one yeah so it's yeah. interesting it's only two years and then she seems so much more mature and older in those ones huh yeah her she whole career spanned less than a decade that's right because she ended up becoming the princess right yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, she'd already made, sorry, she was in a Henry Hathaway film called 14 Hours, a very small movie about a cop trying to talk a man off a ledge. Uh, and then Straight to High Noon, then Mogambo, Dial in for Murder, Rear Window, Country Girl, Green Fire, Toko Ree, 
Catch a Thief, Swan, High Society. That's it. Wow. And yeah, and she kind of looks radically different from film to film, but usually it's in question. It's like in terms of styling. And here she really just does look like she hasn't finished growing up. <laughs> and it works. Like the, I think it's the bonnet or something. It just makes her look like a child bride in a weird way. She kind of, in a weird way, she kind of has the uh, uh, John Cazale career. Yeah. You know, he had five. Happier ending. Have much happier ending. Uh, she became yeah. a princess. He died. Because yeah. uh, he only made five films, but they're all like perfect films. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he I was for, young Meryl Streep too. So that's a, that's a bonus in that. What's that? And he yeah, got Meryl Streep as well, so. And I always forget the fifth one. There's the two Godfathers. There's Dog Day, uh, Deer Hunter, and then what's the fifth one? Conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Not a bad a career. Yeah. Yeah. Really good career. Him really and, good uh, career. What Sal Minio too, right? <laughs> he had a pretty good run for his two films, I think. Uh, yeah, but with um, with this one, I mean, it's it's sort of Gary Cooper who has the Cazal role, where like he's carrying all this physical pain the way Kazal was in Deer Hunter because Cooper, like he had a bad back. He had a bleeding ulcer. He did the fight scene himself when he didn't have to. And just, I think the Oscar was mostly for everyone in Hollywood knowing just how much he put himself through in this yeah. iconic role to make it as good as it could have been. Like he chose not to wear makeup and he looks like hell half the time. It's, it's also, I have to, I have to say, I always forget how much attention to detail there is in just the sweat and the dirt yeah, because it's a hot day, and nobody's happy, and it's tense, and there's just this constant film on people, and it, it's like there's a real. It's not authenticity exactly because the movie's still very much like a studio western, but it feels more real than most of the movies around that same time. Like, I think about you know the Searchers, where all the colors are really bright and everybody looks a little too clean and pressed, mm-hmm. and this is over the course of an hour and a half, people just look like garbage by the end of it. <laughs> Yeah. Torn clothes and sweat stains. Because the town's full of assholes. Except for the one nice, uh, the other woman who is also leaving. Because she's like, fuck these people. This town, yeah. this town is dead. Whether well, the, the guy without an, with an eye patch tried to help and uh, came oh. turned him down. Which I did like that he wasn't like, oh, I'll just take anybody at this point. Well, same I as did. the kid. Same as the kid. Yeah. He's like, no. Yeah. He's like, I'm not letting you you two die i wanted him to but i was like no that's that's good character like don't don't take the one-eyed guy like to a gunfight yeah. and then <laughs> or the kid like, the one-eyed like guy who's clearly guy. clearly got a drinking problem and then he hmm. just enables him further <laughs> right yeah. well i mean if he's drinking he's not going to try and uh shoot somebody or that's get true. shot himself ken you were saying something I was just saying he had a much he had a much tougher time with Lloyd Bridges than he did with the four guys at the end. So it's like, true. Lloyd, See, that's what Lloyd I didn't. It's kind of like really yeah. almost. If if anyone would have been at fault of getting him killed, it would have been Lloyd Bridges. Yeah, that was a good fight. Yeah, it, it was a good fight, but it didn't. I didn't really get. Like I understood why it started, but I was like, why is it still going? Like it's, it's, it's a long fight and it's, and I'm like, Oh, and he doesn't come back to help him later. Cause he learned his yeah, lesson. That's it's just, he just is an idiot that wanted Lloyd to like knock Bridges him out. plays the king of the assholes. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, he never changes. He's just an idiot the whole time. But that's kind of what I love about it too. It's like, even like you don't get the townspeople coming out to redeem themselves at the end, you know, no. they come out after it's all done and he throws his badge in the ground and he's like, I'm out. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you you <laughs> shitty, shitty people. I always wanted there to be a high noon too, where like there's another <laughs> band of like shitty people that show up right after and just destroy they like, waste the town. <laughs> well, you sort of get the sense of how it all happened in the first place because this the it's it's really only implied at the beginning that that uh, Kane came in, cleaned up the town from Frank Miller specifically from this outlaw who mm-hmm. he sent up for uh, for various murders and supposed to die, got a sentence commuted. Now he's coming back because he played the system, which is this great weird resentment of those fat cats in Washington somehow. Like it feels like they're talking about the Northern States uh, giving a Southern villain a chance because it's not that long after the Civil War. We don't yeah. really know exactly when this is taking place, but I'm pretty sure it's like the late 1870s at best. And they're in the South, but nobody has an accent. So it's, again, it's like, studio stuff that you just sort of have to accept at the time. That's how they made these movies. But the sense that, you know, five years ago, you couldn't like a woman couldn't walk down the street on a Sunday, decently dressed and children couldn't play in the streets. And I think there's the suggestion that some of the town is hoping to get back to that. Like there's the people Mm -hmm. in the church and then there's the people in the saloon Mm -hmm. and this, the town hasn't gone full on dry Sunday. There's still, an underculture and yeah, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if Frank Miller came back and got things back to where they used to be. And even some of the people in church kind of make that point where it's just like, he only really wants you Marshall. Mm-hmm. If you're not here, there won't be any violence. He'll just take over. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the whole town guy said the same thing. He yeah. Kind of like, you well, know, there's a lot of people here. here that think he's got his comeuppance. Yeah. Like, he's like the first he's, guy to kind of like be like real talk. Like we don't really like this guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that one guy in the bar that is like taking bets on how fast Gary Cooper's going to die. <laughs> yeah. And then Gary, when Gary Cooper slugs him, he's like, dude, you're a man of the law. You're way above me. Like what? <laughs> like you're better than this. He's, and he's like, He's I like, liked that reaction. Yeah. I love that moment. He's just like, you're better than hitting me. He's like, you're right. And he lets him have some back up. What uh, was, remind me what, uh, what Harry Morgan's um, relationship was to him um, when he went to the house to talk to him. He was I one of his deputies before, right? Before, he was one of the old deputies, like everyone. It was interesting, though, even when he gets to the church, like all those guys instantly step up. They're like, yeah. What's mm-hmm. everyone waiting for? And then as soon as the other person's like, hey, wait a minute, this is the person. I was like, oh, yeah, fuck you then. Yeah. Yeah. Very quickly <laughs> talked themselves out of it. And and obviously the larger metaphor was people naming names to the House Un-American Committee uh, Commission and ratting people out for being yeah. communists and giving them up. And and this is about a guy who refuses to to go along with what everybody else wants, although in this case his life is literally on the line. Um, and Carl Foreman was blacklisted while the movie was being made, I think like he, oh, his name wow. is only on it because it was shot before that happened, as opposed to so many other writers who were disappeared from their own movies. Hmm. And so, you know, John Wayne famously hated the film because it was American. Well, he perceived it as a, a sympathizer project because it's telling people to stand their ground and not give names up. But of course, like it is couched in the most American, uh, <laughs> milieu you can imagine where it's a western hero standing up for right and and morality and protecting his town but yeah wayne um wayne also invented this whole thing like he was giving interviews for years and years about how at the very end gary cooper throws his tin star down and steps on it and grinds it into the dirt which doesn't happen he throws the star down but he doesn't step on it or do anything to to deface it he just resigns yeah with good reason yeah and wayne had to give him give himself these reasons to hate the movie that just didn't exist but yeah. Yeah. he just had to he had to oppose it because it didn't represent his point of view 
Yeah. And technically, he resigned in the beginning of the movie. They're all like, go off. We're fine for the day. Yeah, Yeah, he's doing all this pro bono. I like how we all think that, like, at at first you're like, oh, they're so happy for him. He's getting married and he's leaving town. But then you kind of realize that, no, they're just, like, happy that he's leaving. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, nobody here likes him. This is a town. This the other film that title of the film should have just been Town of Town of Dicks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also then, I also liked when uh, I think the guy's name is Herb. The guy, the only guy that was like, "Yeah, I'll volunteer," was kind of like, you know, I don't really have any personal stakes in this. And I I thought that was more of the Gary Cooper acting that was good. Was just he, before he said anything, just the look he gives of like, "Wow." Okay, like you, you could have said me. I you could I could be your personal stake. Um, <laughs> you're, talk, you're talking about the guy that was like the last one that left him. Yeah, right? yeah the one that was back. like, I'll be back in ten minutes, and then comes back and he's like, Oh, you didn't get anybody. I'm out. Yeah. Like yeah. I, <laughs> just us two. Oh, um, yeah. I, that was the uh, yeah. scene that made me be like, Wow. All right. Like uh, yeah, before, same. I was kind of like, Okay. Some people think like there's a benefit to Frank Miller coming back, and then that was the one scene that like made it crystal clear, like. Also, like he's alone. even the people who are kind of friendly with him don't actually care about him that much. No, and even what's great about that is that's the first time. It's finally when you see him crack. Like he sits down, mm-hmm. and he's just like, and he puts his hands in, and he's like, "Fuck!" And he starts writing his will, last will and testament. Like, yeah, this is, and, and again, that's a very like not John Wayne thing too, right? Like, the, you know, John Wayne would never be like, "I'm not writing my last will and testament because that means I believe there's a chance I'll die." And it's <laughs> like, well, Gary Cooper believed that. <laughs> yeah, because even because even at that point, like you said, it's not a huge army, but it's still four against one. And yeah. in theory, Frank Miller, even though all we've seen him do is sit around waiting for a train the whole movie, is apparently a badass. Oh, that's Ben. That's his brother. Yeah, yeah. Frank's on Which, oh, right. Frank's on the train. And the, right, yeah, the right, other right. thing that I didn't realize until this viewing. So Ben Miller, the 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 guy who keeps asking when the train is coming, and and looks like a pretty decent leading man kind of guy who just happens to be playing a bad guy. He's the guy who was most famous for singing the Purple People. Eater song oh, in the wow. 50s. He oh. had a novelty hit. And okay. it's a oh, I know weird, that song. Yeah, and it is weird as hell. And that's the guy who sang it. It's wow, just that's so weird. That again, like weird. there's a lot of history gathered up in this movie for some bizarre reason. <laughs> that's really interesting. Back to the uh, the ending, the throwing the star on the ground. Is that do you think the ending of this movie is one of the most economical slash abrupt endings of all time? I know it's kind of like the era again, but what he, he shoots the main bad guy, the whole town comes in, throws, there's not even a line of dialogue after he shoots the main bad guy. That's it's not, like, down, down comes out, throws the star down the end. That, no that's cap. not uncommon. Like they yeah. just like story's over. We're not fucking yeah. around here. This is yeah. not Lord of the Rings. Go home. <laughs> we, don't need, we, don't, we don't need 12 endings here. Uh, yeah. No, I think it, it's not uncommon in this era. It's it's really interesting. And uh, especially I keep on talking with him that those Zadoichi movies, like when they're done, they're done. Like as soon as that he defeats the bad guy, it's like a quick look to whoever the girl was that was pining over in, the, in that episode. He's like, well, I'm off. And, and then there's a shot of him walking away and credits. It's, they're, they're, they're boom. Like they and, and and that's not just this like westerns in general like they don't do a whole lot of epilogue storytelling in this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But what, Dirty what, Harry ends exactly the same way. Yeah. Like exactly the same way. And Die Hard. You know, you look at Die Hard. Die Hard's like he gets out, he jumps in the car, he they uh, they ride off into the the, the, sun, sun, the sunrise technically in that yeah. movie, not the yeah, sunset. Yeah. Well, I mean, the epilogue of Die Hard is everything that happens after the building blows up. Like so, Die Hard Two. Yeah, well, it's true. There's four more epilogues technically, but yeah, no, I, it's yeah, it's simple, right? You send the audience out on a high, and in this case, the high is that he simply survived and gets to 
go off with his wife and and although know. he's been shot like nobody yeah. seems to care oh that he's, he's not dead. well <laughs> <laughs> but his wife did stick with it not just stick by him but helped take out one of the bad guys broke her code right like broke the yeah. quaker code of nonviolence for him so that and shot him in the back yeah yeah not like sure she, like well i mean yeah like she yeah like not even a, a nice he's allowed killing. like you know it's it's oh yeah. i think we lost jeremy again no i'm here no no he's yeah no shot him in the back cold just cold <sighs> so, yeah the apple the i watched the trailer after the fact and i was like is are these just alternate takes? Like I, some of it didn't seem like it was actually in the movie. Like same characters, but not the same like dialogue. Oh, you know what? I'm gonna I'll have to watch it again because I, I I I watched it like I didn't make that connection. I'm gonna check that out and see. I'm glad I watched the movie first, but yeah, I was just like, uh, yeah, like I can see them trying to really set the movie up mm-hmm. with the dialogue they chose for this trailer. Yeah. I mean, you would, you'd have to kind of, so much of it is atmosphere and just process of like him going from house to house and building to building. You would have to know exactly how to sell this thing. Do you think like, um, for that time, um, that it would have been somewhat revolutionary to have like the, um, to have it be, you know, somewhat of a, of a real time movie, like with all, you know, looking at the clocks and like for that era. When did imagine, Rope come out? Yeah, Rope I was a couple of years that before. That was, the, that was the first one I could think of. It's right. 48, I think. Okay, yeah, because that was the one that I was thinking of. Like, are they really doing this in real time? That's cool. And then, yeah, I was like, oh, it's obviously longer than even the movie. But yeah, um, let me think. It was Rear Window was the one, or Rear Window. Uh, Rope was the one, the big yeah. one. But that was also the stunt of single takes, right? Like That's it was right. camera yeah. magazine. It was like eight cuts or something, right? Or, yeah, or, and six of them were hidden. There's one yeah. cut from something to Jimmy Stewart's face that every time yeah. it's just like you jump back. Yeah. So we can talk about that. How did, how do you think the real time worked? I mean, it, I think it's pretty close. It's a, we were talking about it was, this earlier. It was good. I, I liked having like a ticking clock literally to look at. And even the language of cutting back to the tra- the train tracks. Yeah. Cause like each time I was like, wait, is it going to be early? Or like there was something to like, um, keep the sense of dread in addition to everybody like turning them down or flat out saying, I don't like that guy. <laughs> I thought, I, I too thought it was really effective, especially the first time when he says, you know, the train's coming in at, at noon and he does that first slow turn to look at the clock behind him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like almost in that moment, I was like, Oh my God, is this going to be real time? Like, you know, it, it, it totally signaled me in. And then, uh, and then I was, I was along for the ride on that. Like, it was it was so interesting to go back to the train station where those guys were just going to stand around for an hour, you <laughs> yeah. know, while while everyone in the town cowardly hovered instead of just taking care of the problem before it started. Yeah, <laughs> they did ask, "Why don't you just arrest somebody?" He's like, "I I can't." Yeah, <laughs> no uh, great, against right? like just hanging up. He is a good enough marshal, and again, it just sort of demonstrates how much of an iron fist he's been holding in the town for the mm-hmm. length of time since he cleaned it up. It's like, well, yeah. nope, sorry, that's the law, and how it becomes a boomerang in this case because it would make things an awful lot easier if he just went up and arrested yeah. them or even just shot him. I mean, I'm sure they'd do something angry at him, and he could just take advantage loitering, of that. right? Sure, loitering, <laughs> loitering, yeah. Oh, the other little exchange I really liked was um, when he let the uh, lash out of the jail cell uh, just before the train came <laughs> in. And, yeah. You know, like that, just that quick little exchange of, uh, 
do you think the saloon's open? <laughs> I said go home. <laughs> yeah. Which is all, and he doesn't even try to recruit him. Yeah. Because exactly. this guy, no. That's a liability. He's got the DTs. He's got the shakes. There's no way this guy's going to yeah. be of any use at all. <laughs> I feel like Leone might have used that guy as well. His face looked kind of familiar. Yeah, like Jackie Lim. Um, okay. Who I thought I recognized, and I double checked. He's really he did a lot of TV westerns in the seventies and eighties because he had an eye that poked the wrong way. And the uh, older he got, the bigger and craggier his face got, and the eye would just kind of push and push. Yeah. And by the end of it, he was really he had a very distinctive look. Is he one of the guys in the opening of Once Upon a Time in the West? I wouldn't be surprised. That was fifteen years later. Yeah, I thought about that a lot too. The, all the guys hanging out at the train station, and even though it's obviously like very different from the Leone westerns, I do feel like he kind of cherry picked a few things, like like Lee Van Cleef and uh, a lot of like the scenes that were all kind of played through looks and like very little dialogue, and uh, and just the kind of the whole like literally just building the tension by waiting for a train and building that tension slowly. Um, yeah, that's the pacing. Obviously, in the real time, the pacing of this movie is very deliberate but and i i know again different era but i did find it like a little bit like you know it was like 36 minutes until the first punch is thrown there's not yeah. there's not a shot fired until like 10 minutes before the movie's over it's not like it's not very much action but you know it, it was still very deliberate and like it felt you know it, it was it was i don't know it was good but not what we're used to these days. Yeah. Well, even at the time, Westerns were constantly like there was chasing and riding and there was always motion or activity. And so a film that just sort of dwells in that space where like, the biggest problem I have with most real time projects is knowing that nothing can happen until the end. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's not like he's going to get sidelined and he has to finish this quest. But that also means... I have this problem with found footage films all the time too, just because you know, like in, in any of the paranormal activity movies, it's not like you're going to see a ghost before this thing is over. Like, yeah. That's when it ends. And so with, with high noon, the fact that there won't be a gunfight until the very end, but there also won't be anything else. Just mm -hmm. disagreements is mm -hmm. kind of powerful in a weird way. And a lot of walking back and forth. Build the tension for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you think that's why they had the they th they threw in that long fight with Lloyd Bridges because it's like I, that's, that's what I thought. Something. They needed another big. They needed a more personal big bad that you saw throughout the entire movie, right? Because mm -hmm. the problem is like you get no real relationship with Frank Miller other than all the things you've heard. Mm -hmm. I yeah. thought it was like you know the the thing of you know you never want your hero to go in at full strength to the final battle. You know, you yeah, that works too. You want to have him be beat down so that like he's, you know, the very, even though he is the underdog, he's like, it's like, how do you come back from that? You know, it's. Um, and I like that he saw his wife leave right before it started. Yeah. yeah. That, I, that was like, oh, that's effective as well. His wife and his, and his ex-girlfriend or yeah. his ex-wife. Oh, they're friends and they're leaving together. Everyone's <laughs> together on the train. Yeah. Yeah. He's got, well, he's got, he's literally fighting for no one but himself at that point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, which is what makes him like, how do you, I, I, <laughs> I want to meet the person who refuses to root for Gary Cooper in this movie. <laughs> yeah. It would be hard. It's Lloyd Bridges. Everyone yeah. in the town. Jerk. Yeah. Everyone in that shithole town that needs to be lit on fire. They uh, tried. They tried lighting it on fire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we should, I, I'd love to talk about Katie Girado for a few minutes because um, Mrs. Ramirez is, I think the most interesting character in the film. It really hit me this time that she is, kind of pulling strings but kind of not and and ultimately it seems like her realization that she's helpless is what gets her to leave to i would love to leave. watch like a spin-off of her like yeah, just give me her version of the 
Yeah, and what happens to her after this movie? I'm in. I want to see what happened to her before the movie as well. Like, I feel like she had a lot of interesting things going on. And um, she's safe. And I was happy when she stayed on the train. I was like, okay, good. I'm glad she's out. So nothing good's going to come for her. <laughs> <laughs> She'll get the rest of that thousand, that other thousand bucks, though. I mean, that's unanswered. Yeah. Question. yeah. I, I think she has to, right? Like, they're all alive still. So there's no, yeah. it's, not, it's not like Frank Miller won. Yeah, these guys are assholes, but they're going to fall in line when the next Marshall shows up. Yeah. <laughs> but she's, yeah, she's she's the one character who seems to stick out in structural terms because she doesn't do anything. Like, she doesn't actually, she doesn't absolve Will of of what he, of how their relationship ended. And she, if anything, tries to talk Lloyd Bridges' character out of being an asshole and fails yeah. and but i thought she succeeded at getting the wife to be like i guess i should stick by him yeah i think she's there as a moral figure but the movie hides it really really well because that character mm-hmm. would not have been taken seriously as a moral figure by an audience in 1952 mm-hmm. true yeah. yeah she's especially like she's borderline harlot you know she's dressed provocatively she's clearly conducting illicit business or we're meant to think she is she's she's had relationships with all three major uh, male characters in the story. Mm -hmm. And yet she's the one who never dissembles, always speaks the truth, speaks clearly, treats people like equals. She's the moral center of the film, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, not, not to talk away from her, but it's like when you brought up that idea of like the next, the next sheriff coming up, it's like, who is that poor bastard that's no idea <laughs> the shitty people that he's about to like look over? He's gonna show up and say, hey, everyone, they're like the the, the badge still some dust on it, they're cleaning it off. It's like, why is this why, why is it dirty? It's like, oh no, I just dropped it in the dirt. Uh you know, that's the thing, is it was like there was no real shame at the end. Like they they kind of like they didn't learn their lesson. Yeah. They, didn't, no. they, they just they seemed excited to that it was over and to get rid of this guy. <laughs> the kid looked yeah. like he was a bit ashamed of what happened. I think, yeah. yeah, yeah, because he was the one, he was the one character that was willing to fight. Absolutely. Yeah. He was, um, but, you know, everybody else, like, you know, they didn't linger on them for too long, looking no. like uh, uh, the shame that they should have felt, certainly. The audience feels it. The audience hates them all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's the Republican Party after Trump lost his Twitter account. You know. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, he was bad. He was bad the whole time. We, yeah, we, we don't just, like him either. Business as usual. Now let's get back to ruining other people's lives. It's just... It's so weird that High Noon continues to be relevant 70 years later for completely different reasons. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For sure. That's all of these, uh, that's all of these Westerns. Uh, I don't know if you, any of you touched on it while I was away in my, uh, my internet squabbles, but there's, a, there's a, a, not a fun story, but a, a, a kind of terrifying story of that, that, that great shot of the train coming around the tracks and towards camera with the black smoke on it. So... Um, what the director and the DP didn't know was that black smoke basically means uh, there's fucking problems with the line and that the train that was coming towards them, the brakes were shot. Oh, yeah. And it was barreling towards the camera. They got off the tracks just in time, but the camera was demolished like DeLorean Back to the Future 3 style. Wow. But the, but the film survived, and that's the shot that's in the movie. That's mm. crazy. Yeah, so it was almost like a slice for Sarah situation, you know, eighty years before that. Wow, where they where they they almost didn't get off in time because they're like, well, the train's going to stop. It's our train. Like the guy knows where he's supposed to stop and this and that. And someone <laughs> was like, get the fuck out! What are you doing? <laughs> I think it's not slowing down. Wow, 
Um, you don't do anything for the shot. The mm-hmm. Yeah, as you do. <laughs> but Did the shot that, lives forever, right? That's what's important. I the mean, shot ah, that that's camera. What, <laughs> they that's had, what they I, it's, it's shocking though. The, 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 I'm surprised that the films, or I guess the mag must have survived inside of it. Because other than that, you would think that if that mag opened and the film got exposed to sunlight, it would have been screwed. But apparently, it those things those things were tanks anyway. Yeah. So did this movie winning Gary Cooper the Academy Award? Did this um, like rekindle his career at all, or was yeah. this still kind of his golden, uh, golden? I can't remember what he did after, but it was definitely like considered his comeback film because he was on like he had had a kind of. Not a rough couple of years, but he had like he was on the downswing. He was considered in the twilight of his career, and this kind of rejuvenated him. Uh, I can't remember. Norm's probably got it handy, but what came after this for Gary Cooper? But that's yeah, he was all of a sudden like uh, a bunch of new we- uh, westerns. I'm thinking like Vera Cruz was one that I remember vaguely, um, but uh, he worked for another ten years, I think. Let's oh yeah, uh, last movie was in 1961. And um, he kept going like, consistently leading man roles. He he was kind of on the verge of becoming a character actor, and then he just rolled back in. And, wow. you know, why wouldn't he? He was the guy that everybody wanted to work with anyway. He was yeah. just, you know, an actor's actor, completely unfussed, unpretentious, unnatural. Yeah, you can just love looking at him. Yeah. No. But he's, and he's charming, and, he, you know, he's got that great, that great everyman quality to him too, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you know, you have to believe that he might lose and that, that, you know, moral backbone isn't enough that he might just accidentally, you know, he might just collapse and not get there. He might be beaten up in the barn. He, he only rides a horse to escape at one point sideways, which is, I think at the time was a big stunt, but he's doing it. He's doing it himself. Yeah, that was yeah. him. Wow. So, yeah. That was really cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the only thing this movie's missing for me is just like some context as to like what what the, what threat Frank Miller is, you know, and what that looks like and means, you know, what, yeah. outside of just hearing about it. But that's also the era. Like the, the, the modern remake of this would absolutely start 10 years earlier, you yeah. know, and show you that, you know, it's sort of that big, exciting scene. And then well, they, they have that scene where the guy's out. like pointing at the chair and being like, don't you remember what he sat in that chair? And he said, and I was like, oh, I thought we were going to do a flashback. Never oh, mind. and they reused that shot of that, <laughs> that chair. Over. That was so funny. I laughed yeah. out loud when they went, when they were showing all the townspeople and then they showed the chair again as if it yeah. was like a character. <laughs> like, yeah. That's his flashback scene missing. <laughs> yeah. Scared of the chair, out. man. They're all scared of the chair. <laughs> That's where he sat. We've, we haven't tried anyone since. There, no one really breaks the law in this town, except for, for girl Frank. Yeah. Oh, God, that was so funny. I kept kind of expecting, like, a bit more of the backstory as to, like, why these people seem to, like, kind of sympathize with Frank and not Kane. I kept expecting to kind of, like, learn a bit more about that. And, like, yeah. And which also kind of brings me to another point where I always kind of think it's funny in movies where the bad guy's motivation is revenge for the uh, lawman that arrested him for being, like, you know, a very like guilty criminal <laughs> like, yeah, for doing funny. his job. Yeah. I always think that's a funny motivation. It's like, does this ever happen in real life? <laughs> I'm going to get the cop that put me away. That, now that cop, it's all his fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He ran him out of town. He took him out of his nice, comfortable 
I don't know, crime kingdom? What would you call it? You know, think Certainly, about Deadwood, yeah. right? He's Swearingen. He's the guy who's running the whole place. And then somebody has the temerity to come in and tell him it's illegal. Mm. Swearingen's way smarter than this guy. That's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. Swearingen went over fight. Bullock. Yeah. And Swearingen wouldn't fight him himself. He knows way better than to do that. <laughs> That's a good point. They well, didn't really have a crime lord in Deadwood, did they? Yeah. Not, not well, like Frank. Oh, well, in Deadwood, it was the, uh, uh, this is his name, Major Dad. Um, oh, yeah, Major Dad. <laughs> McCraney. Yeah, when he finally yeah. shows up, Hurst. Yeah, Hurst. Yeah, he's yeah. the he's the real big bad. That's why it's like he's the, it's like, it's like if you look at, you know, Swearingen is, you know, Hannibal Lecter. That's because, you know, uh, McCraney is like the other people who are worse. Right. In a weird way. Because at least Swearingen has a code. Yeah, and actually, well, Swearingen, I think, could be a good comparison because the town did kind of like him. You know, he was part of the how the town worked. And, you know, I think, yeah, people would have, they kind of wanted him around, you know, except for Bullock. Yeah, but, he got uh, you what you wanted, right? That was his whole thing. Yeah. But then Bullock also realized, like, how, what he, he, there was a function to him, you know? Yeah. There was a need for him in the, in the town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, that, obviously, that movie treats the town itself is much or the show treats the town itself as much more of an organism than this does. Because mm-hmm. again, this is all people who are, you know, ruled by self-interest and cowardice and, and scurrying to the sanctity of the church or the bar as soon as there's a threat. And that's what's even more fascinating though, is because like the movie never ever asks you or expects you to root for the town. Yeah. Uh, because you, sh- and what's great about it is, you know, the audience is sitting there going, leave, get the fuck mm-hmm. out. You owe these people nothing. And nobody's going to think you're a coward for running away from a man who just wants to kill you for doing your job. Yeah. But he thinks that he doesn't want to run away because he's like, they're just, they're just going to keep chasing him. Right. That's what he's more worried. It's got to end somewhere. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Might as well be here on my wedding day. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wedding morning, early morning wedding. It's like let's get him out as soon as possible. Can we get the wedding at nine a.m.? Let's get, let's get the guy out of here. But you I did know like what? That the church was mad at him. I love, <laughs> and that, and that's just another like feather in like the character of of Grace Kelly's, where she's just like, no, I'm not putting up with this shit. It's like you made a promise to me when we got married that you're going to be done with this stuff, and I'm getting on that train. You know, and she, you know, she she ends up stepping back from it out of love or, or whatever foolishness, but there's something really great about that. Like, you know, she's not going to stand by him yet. She's got, she has a story. She has an arc to go through as well, mm-hmm. you know, and she's not just there as the damsel, even though, you know, she does, but it's interesting. Like she gets, there's that moment where he has to, you know, in theory rescue her when she's taken hostage after she shoots the other guy. But there's a moment where like, she clearly does something to give him the advantage. Yeah. You know, she smushes his face. Yeah. Yeah. Again, very abrupt. <laughs> like it's no, but that, that, that's a bull. Like that's for her. It's like that, that could have got her killed, you know? Yeah. Could have got her killed. Yeah. I don't Did know why she, he didn't shoot her. <laughs> I'm just saying like, why didn't he shoot her? Yeah. Not a very formidable villain. It turns out. Frank it's Grace Miller. Kelly. You don't shoot Grace yeah. Kelly. There are rules. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't have said she should have died. <laughs> just seemed like that was definitely leading me to believe she was going to get shot. Yeah. <laughs> I think if this movie was done today, that whole last shootout would have been half an hour instead of 10 minutes. The, they yeah. would have dragged out that last shootout much longer, I think, if this was a modern movie. Yeah, probably involved more of the town. Involved. Yeah. Oh, man. If, if Grace Kelly would have got shot at the end of this movie, he right after uh, he killed the bad guy, he would have like, opened fire on the whole town. 
Yeah. <laughs> and you would have been rooting for him. Yeah, of, of course. <laughs> that's how the mod, that's how my remake ends. So in case you're all wondering, him just like laying waste in the town and I was all going, yeah, I get it. I, I don't care. I'm fine with you doing that. So who would you cast in the remake now? Oh God. George Clooney. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Clooney? Yeah. I don't have any, uh, I came up with that really like quickly. I put no thought into it. Uh, I mean, but, it's uh, a good analog for Cooper. I was thinking like Denzel Washington, maybe somebody. I was, th- I was thinking of a Magnificent Seven remake. I'm like, yeah. Denzel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they already kind of they did that, didn't they? Yeah. Well, the problem with that, the Magnificent Seven one is it doesn't let him be angry in the same way. Like in this one, like the moral force of Denzel Washington, I think would be really interesting in this just because you know, imagine people refusing to work with him over and over and over again and watching mm-hmm. that frustration build. Uh, having just seen the little things where he's playing someone who's like just beaten down and angry and, and no one will believe him. I think like he popped right into my head. It's like, oh yeah, but give him a real reason to be like furious and powerless. That well, it would is almost, this performance. But that would almost have to be like given, you know, if you're playing historically accurate, they'd be playing the race card, right? That is like the reason why they're not going along with him as the sheriff is because yeah, he's, he's not one of them, depending mm-hmm. on what the rest of the makeup of the town looks like. You'd be getting to like blazing saddles territory. Yeah, I was just thinking that the sheriff <laughs> yeah. is the, yeah, that's what we need. We really need a high noon blazing saddles matchup. Yeah. 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 I mean, no longer with us. There's so many, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, George Clooney was just the first one that popped. I mean, Tom Hanks. Yeah, he's pretty much done this before, though. Like, doesn't it feel like Tom Hanks has made a movie like this, even though he never actually has? Yeah, I guess that yeah, new road, one road, Western, road, right? The new one. Yeah, there, it's not there's, really an, there's an element of road to perdition in this. Mm, I was thinking Bridge of Spies. Yeah. Where he's just an exhausted functionary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, it's, but it's also, I, th- I just think the audience would be like, who says no to helping Tom Hanks? Yeah. Like, yeah. Who? What? What cold-hearted person would say no to helping Tom Hanks? That's why. That's where I, I go. You can't say no to Tom Hanks. <laughs> I wonder. Yeah. I mean, and Duvall's then, a little too old, but he'd kind of be my ideal for a remake. Duvall. Oh, Duvall. And Harris, yeah. maybe. Harrison Ford. Harrison oh, Ford. Into like very old territory. Yeah, but you like. <laughs> I, I I'm thinking now, like you'd want somebody whose entire career is in conversation with this part. Like somebody, Costner, I guess would be yeah. the one. Costner, yeah. Harris was great in West, like he's in Westworld. He can, he can still like sling guns with the best of them. That guy, like, I think he'd be, he'd be pretty good. And Harris, Harris doesn't necessarily have that. Like, I don't know. He's got a coldness to him where I don't know if I feel bad for him in the way I do other people. You want the vulnerability. Uh, yeah. do like a, a guy Pierce would bookend nicely with LA confidential. His role in that, you know, it would be a good bookends for his career. I'd watch that. (laughs) Yeah. Any other final thoughts on this? Um, I don't think so. I wish I could have seen it for the first time. Um, We were talking about this very briefly when you disappeared the first time. Um, And this, the experience of watching a movie that invented the tropes long after they've become sort of calcified is really fascinating. And the, yeah. the post-modern Westerns that came along, like stuff like The Hateful Eight even, or, or um, 
or the the what did we call them in the 90s the emotional westerns like dances with wolves and wyatt earp and even tombstone they're all playing with the history of movies like this but this is the one that wrote the history in a lot of ways there really weren't a lot of slow burn westerns that worked the way this one does so i mean there were a lot of cheap westerns where there was no money to do anything and so there were a lot of dialogue scenes but this one by virtue of having the real time thing and by virtue of having the the blood revenge thing it really all crystallizes the whole mm-hmm. genre in a way that it hadn't before and Mm-hmm. Um, I remember seeing the other big Western we saw in film school in, in 88, 87, 88 was Stagecoach. And there's that shot where uh, the camera zooms in to introduce the Ringo kid with just, you know, John Wayne standing with a gun over his shoulder. And 75 of us, like, I think it started ironically, we're all cheering when he showed up. And then you realize, no, the movie earned that. Like, it's actually working you. Yeah. And you can't watch, you can try to watch High Noon ironically, but I think it beats you down. I think it just defeats you with its, with its earnestness, blunt force earnestness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the ticking clock does work really, like is used really well here. And, and and it's kind of like, I was right before you mentioned Stagecoach, I was thinking about that because it is like on a track, right? It's the Stagecoach. It, the the ticking clock in this is the stagecoach and stagecoach basically where yeah. it's like, there's a track here you can't get off and you've got to like yeah, just it's going to take you it's going to get there one way or another and it sets up really organically like from the get go it's like you you know the noon train is you know he's supposed to be leaving on it and she then yeah it's great hmm. yeah. yeah clear uh, goals clean lines yeah uh, Ken final thoughts um I just you know. I, I love Westerns. Most of the Westerns that I, that I tend to find myself watching are like these long languid affairs that are, Mm. um, you know, sprawling. And, and it was really, it was really nice to watch one that was simple and brisk and, and clear cut and, um, and uh, not overcomplicated with a strong through line. Like it was just, it, it, it's something that I didn't even know existed really. Uh, uh, to see to see a western like that so um, yeah i I really enjoyed it i i um you know there's parts because it is a little antiquated it's a little older um there are parts i found a little bit silly but um wouldn't have been silly in the day and 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 god it was shot so beautifully the cinematography is fantastic so i enjoyed it Given that, I would definitely recommend you check out some of the Zatoichi movies because they're very of that like hour and a half straight line, even lesser. Some of them are like only eighty minutes, like hour hour and like straight line, simple story, well told, great performances, beautifully shot. Yeah, I will. I'll hunt that down. Yeah, I can't recommend them enough. Uh, Daniel, uh, yeah, I think I wasn't expecting to care about. Uh, Will Kane. As much as I did going into it, I thought I was just going to like, oh, it'll be fun, like revenge movie uh, based on the High Noon, and I thought there was going to be just like a one-on-one shoot down, but shoot off. But I liked that they kind of kept weaving in all the different ways he's disappointed by people in his life um, to put him in an emotional state that the just those four guys felt like enough for me to be like, okay, something's going to happen. Yeah, uh, so yeah, it was well done. And Noah. Oh, uh, well, I kind of thought I already gave my final yeah. thought. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, like kind of what Daniel was saying too, I did expect a duel because I think it's a famous cover art too, right? Where it's like you see the holster and the guy in the distance in the th- thoroughfare. So I definitely expected a duel at the end. A little disappointed I didn't get that, but it was still, it was, it was kind of nice to be surprised as well. 
I kind of love that though because it kind of defies the tropes where it's just like he's not going to give this guy the satisfaction. Mm-hmm. It's like you are expecting that that it's like they're going to like do the guns and draw three, but it's like no, it's like he has an opening shot. He's going to take it because he wants to get the fuck out of this town. Yeah, he's yeah. waited around long enough for this. It's like no, it's enough. He the fact that he stayed this whole time is is his showdown. Yeah, and it was never going to be a fair fight, right? Like it's four against one. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. why why give them that? Yeah, and the thing I walk away from this, and the thing that I would like if I was to reference this movie to my students is like I'm constantly like telling them that it's like put your character through hell, like beat them mercilessly as much as you can, and that's what's great about this is like nobody wants to help him ever. Uh, you know, he's just constantly being rejected and turned down, and it gets harder and harder. And it's like, and if you love your your character, you have to torture them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does it very, very well. Yeah. So, how well, do you feel about it being number two hundred? Oh, I feel great. It's, it's it's funny. It's like it's one of those movies that you go, is it iconic? As iconic as, as some other movies, but I think it is there. I think it's like one of those ones that you know, it's not necessarily a uh, you know a Godfather or a Gone with the Wind or one of those, but it's also I think it's one of those ones that maybe should almost be higher revered than it is by the mass populace i think it's well well known am- amongst like you know cinephiles mm-hmm. but uh that's because um because westerns in general have kind of fallen out of public favor maybe like, um, a movie like this would have been so huge um you know in the era of the western but now that that is a is a genre that unfortunately um has largely disappeared from from uh, cinemas altogether um you know, a lot of people aren't looking back at the old ones because it's they they're not exposed to anything else. Mm. I actually we were talking at the beginning about how it's been on a lot of like the AFI's top 100, and I was looking at that, and you know they did it, uh, you know, 100 years, 100 movies, and I think it was uh, 33, and then they did 10 years later, and it, it actually moved up. It was oh, like it moved up in the 10 years later to like 27 spot or something. So I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, that it would move up in that 10 years somehow. Yeah, and Roger Ebert didn't like it, which I think dented it a lot in the 80s and 90s. It kind of worked against it developing that kind of classic reputation. He would, he never formally reviewed it, but he said he didn't like it and would say he didn't like it at almost every opportunity. Um, <laughs> huh. Which is weird. Do you yeah. remember off the top of your head what he didn't like about it? No, he never really went into detail. Um, he... Uh, the, the one comparison I remember him making was he wrote a list of the 10 greatest movies ever his top 10. And when it came to discussing Rashomon, he said, a lot of people think High Noon is a great movie. I don't, but I do think Rashomon is. That's basically his entry. And it's not like those two have anything in common. It just felt like he really needed to let people know that High Noon was not going to be on this list. No, and that's interesting because it's like, especially when you bring Kurosawa into the conversation, because he didn't, you know, he made his fair share of quote unquote Western type movies. Oh yeah. You know, Easterns technically, if you want to, you know, give them the right geographical standpoint, but this was Rashomon is not one of them. <laughs> no. And he was hugely influenced by movies. Like I think high noon would probably have been an influence for him. hundred percent. Like the simplicity of it. And maybe that's why it struggles to have the same level of, of reverence among, among uh, the general public, just because when you describe it, it really does sound like the most generic Western of all. And that's the point. But until you see it, you can't fully appreciate how well it does what it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well said. 
Uh, well, thank you everyone for, for joining me on episode 200. That was a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for having, having me. me. We'll see you for 2000. We'll be here. All right. Let's all go to the Thanks for joining us for High Noon. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a